Good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here at Copper Hills, and uh, in a little bit, I'd like to tell you about a recent experience in uh, Israel and Jordan that I had with a group of people. But before I do that, if you're new to Copper Hills, maybe you've been around for uh, just a few weeks or maybe uh, longer than that, but you are interested in finding out a little bit about Copper Hills, who we are, how we function, how we're led, those kinds of things. Uh, Several times a year, we do something called Copper Hills 101, and uh, this Wednesday, that's happening at 7 o'clock. What it is, is it's a casual, informal evening where you get to ask your questions of our leadership team, and we'll try to give you some information for sure you're interested in. No, you are, right? So if you'll register online, we'd love to see you on uh, Wednesday evening for that. Also... One time a year, beginning of the year, when we all think about finances and where we're at and how's it working for me and those kinds of things, we do something called Financial Peace University. We've done it like six, seven years, something like that. And uh, I want to show you a little bit of a video to introduce you to what it is and then invite you to participate. So let's run that video. And the borrower is slave to the lender. Are you really going to make the hard choices to change your life? We had 40000 in student loans, uh-huh. 17000 in cars. I owned a rental property. We had a line of credit, just stuff. We had 16 credit cards. The proverb says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when desire comes... We paid off $83,000. Wow! When desire comes... $144,000. When desire comes... $450,000 in the last seven years. Wow! It is the tree of life. God says this is how you get out of debt. You gotta run! 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 There is no doubt that this process called Financial Peace University works. The only question is whether you're gonna be involved. And so if you haven't signed up yet, now is the time. Imagine if he had a little bit of energy, right? <clears throat> so that, that kicks off this Wednesday. It's for nine weeks. Uh, if you're interested in that, we'd love to have you be part of it. You can register online, and we'll expect you on Wednesday. Okay, so I said that I had uh, recently taken a trip to Israel. I've been gone for the last couple of weeks. No one missed me, and that's wonderful. That's really a good sign. Uh, but Pastor Paul and myself took a group of 50-plus people to, uh, to Israel. Some of us went to Jordan for a few days prior to that to go to Petra. That is cool, by the way. If you ever get a chance to go to Petra, that's really, really cool. Uh, so <clears throat> this was a pilgrimage. Now, I need to explain a little bit of what a pilgrimage is because it's not exactly the same thing as a sanctified Holy Land vacation. It's a little different than that. Uh, pilgrimages have been done by followers of various religious groups for, for a long time. Now, for those of us that know Jesus, love Jesus, have given our lives to him and experienced the wonder of what we just saw in that tank right over there, Israel holds a place, a special place for us, because this, of all the places in the world, this is where God chose to manifest his presence through Jesus Christ. Get this, if this is news to you, buckle up. God became human and came to earth and lived among us and gave his life for us. And it all happened in a very small area. And so when people say, I want to know that part of Jesus and his story and the story of the Bible, a really great thing is to go and live and be and 
see the actual places in Israel. Life becomes a little different. You see the text of Scripture a little different. You view your own faith differently. Somehow those contexts just change. And so uh, when we do this again, and if God chooses, that's what we'll do, uh, consider being part of it and uh, joining in. The, the cool thing with this particular trip is half of our group were 20-somethings. And they get to experience that from really a pretty young age all the way through. I'm like an old guy. And so for me, it was meaningful, but I know for, for them it was. Okay, so I learned some lessons when I was there. And uh, I'd like to share a couple of those with you if you're okay. Even if you aren't, I'm doing that. Okay. <laughs> so one of the lessons that I learned was this. Israel is not Narnia or Middle Earth. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, it's a real place. When I grew up as a little boy, <clears throat> we were, I grew up in a family where Jesus was central and the church occupied a lot of our time. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and almost any other time that the doors were open. We didn't even know why we were there sometimes, and we were there. But central to that was the text of Scripture. So I've always known that it's true, even when I didn't know like, for sure myself that it was true. I do know today, but I, I learned it. I read it. My mom and dad read it to me. I re- heard it in Sunday school. Uh, I memorized passages of it with my mom. And so it's always just been like a real book for me. I, when I became an adult, I took my own time to study and read and think it through. And then that became the book of my seminary experience. And so like it's always been this, right? But... Like Narnia in Middle Earth, till I actually went to be in the space, my view of it was in the same, located in the same part of my brain as Narnia and Middle Earth. Because I had to imagine it. Yes, I saw YouTube videos, and yes, there were TV experiences, and yes, there were the maps at the back of my Bible. Remember that, right? But it occupied the same, I tried to imagine and you can't always imagine exactly what it is till you're in that space. And so one of the experiences along the way was actually in Jordan, not in Israel. As I said, a few of us, half of us or so, went to Jordan first of all. And then we picked up the rest of the group once a few days later in, uh, in Israel. So one of the places that we visited in Jordan is a place called Mount Nebo. That's not Nemo. That's a clownfish. That's something else, if that's where you think we're going. This is Nebo. And here's a picture of Mount Nebo. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you go into the Old Testament, you're going to read the story of a guy named Moses. Most of you will know something about Moses. He's a guy that is born in Egypt while his nation of the Israelites are in captivity at 40 years of old, there's a, there's a violent act that happens, and he flees for his life till he's 80 years old, and God meets him in a torched-up little bush kind of thing and speaks to him through that. And after a little bit of hesitation and, you know, why me kind of thing, he agrees to be God's chosen leader to take his people out of Pharaoh's captivity to the, what became known as the promised land. And that land would be Israel. 
And so God says, Moses, let's go. He does a few convincing things to help Pharaoh go, yeah, go, go. And so they go. And they miss their opportunity to make an early entrance into the promised land because they don't quite trust God enough. And so the next 40 years, this poor leader (laughs) wanders with this million, two million person group of people till finally, 40 years later, they're on the edge of this promised land. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which kind of marked the barrier for it. And this is where Mount Nebo comes into place. This is a mountain that Moses climbs to the top of and looks out into Israel to the west. And you can just imagine saying, there's the finish line. Made it. This cantankerous group of people, I didn't think we would get here. We're there. All we have to do is cross that little river and we're there. Made it. Finish line. Awesome. God, you're great. I'm your hero. Like, let's do this. Except this is what happens. We read this. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab, which was the name of the country that that was in, to the top of Pisgah, which is the probably, not for sure, the name of the mountain range itself, across from Jericho. You remember Jericho, right? One of those famous stories in the Bible that is about to happen where they cross, the Israelites cross the Jordan River, and the first city they come to is Jericho. And I know, I know this sounds like fantasy, but they walk around it for six straight days once, on the seventh day, they walk around it seven times. They toot some trumpets and yell, and the walls fall. No, really. That's the story. That's how it goes, right? That's, that's the Jericho we're talking, talking about. There the Lord showed him the whole land, spreads it out before him. Moses, that's what, we, what I promised you. And then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised. On oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said... I'll give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, Moses. The only catch is that you're not going to cross over into it. Okay, pause for just a second. What do you do at that point? You're Moses. You're 120 years old. At 80 years old, you took God at his word. And he said, you're going to... You're going to lead my people into that promised land. And then you get there. Victory is just ahead of you. And he says, but you're not going to go. You're not going to go. I love it that the scripture doesn't tell us what that conversation was like. What do you think? That is so unfair, God. How could you possibly do that? I've been faithful to you. I've worked with this group of people. I have tried. I've done my level best. Yeah, I've made some mistakes along the way for sure. But God, it wasn't because of my lack of love for you or my lack of effort or my lack of faith in you. And now we get to this place and victory's right there and you tell me I can't go. I'm frustrated with you, God. I think you might have let me down here. I think you might have strung me along. It doesn't say that. That's the conversation I would have with God. And you might too. Have you ever faced that? Where you're pretty sure that God's not coming through? Where you're pretty sure that he's maybe abandoned you? That you're just like on the edge of it and it all kind of collapses? 
and unexpected things happen and things you don't want to have happen? What's the conversation with God like in those moments? It gets worse. This is what happens. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab. As the Lord had said, he buried him in Moab in the valley of opposite Beth Peor, which is just north of Mount Nebo. But to this day, no one knows where his grave. You can't even find out where the guy's buried. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. But he didn't get there. He didn't get there. So I'm standing on Mount Nebo. I'm looking at the very view that Moses had. I can see the Jordan River. To the south, I can see the Dead Sea. Just across the Jordan, I can see Jericho. In the distance, it's a bit of a hazy day. I can't see Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but I know it's there at night. I would have been able to see it. And Moses is looking out on this. And God says, there it is. But you're not going to go. You're going to die right here. And I got to thinking, what a disappointment that must be to get that close and not experience it. And then something interesting happens in this passage. It's fascinating to me. Let me read it. Maybe you'll catch it with me. The Israelites grieved Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Typical was seven. Moses gets 30 because of the significance, I think, of who he was. Until the time of weeping and mourning was done. This was kind of an official thing that people did. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. Must be some kind of authority there. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, get this. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. None. Whom the Lord knew face to face. That's fascinating. Who did all these signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. And then get this. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And as I'm looking out into Jerusalem, I think, okay, So there's so much disappointment. What if there was a choice here? What if the choice for Moses was you can go across and you can win and you can be the hero and you can be acknowledged and you can be praised for what you do or you can have a legacy that will 3,300 years later there will be a church gathered in Peoria, Arizona and they're going to talk about the wonder of who you are as a prophet that you are faithful. No one's done what you've done. No one has a friendship with God like you face to face. Did miracles and amazing things. Moses, which would you rather have? Do you want to finish and be the winner or do you want the legacy? Now I got to say, those are not mutually exclusive. Except they were for Moses. He gets one or the other. He can either go and be the hero. Nothing wrong with that. He can go and celebrate the wonder of what God's done. He can go and be acknowledged for that guy. And he, he, he gets to the end of his 120 years and he can take a breath and go, we did it, we won, we accomplished. Or, Moses, your legacy can be what people talk about. And when they do, they're not just going to talk about the wonder of who you are. They're going to be talking about the wonder of a God who did ridiculous things through you. Which one would you rather have? This is why I'm glad the passage doesn't tell us what the conversation was. 
because you and I get to put ourselves in it. As I stood on Mount Nebo looking, and this passage and this idea came to my mind, I thought, which would I choose if it came down to it? Which would you pick? Again, they're not mutually exclusive, but sometimes, maybe almost every day in some fashion or another, it, we answer one of those questions. We either make life about ourselves and our win and what we're going to do and how we're going to get cheered and how we're going to get praised and we're going to be victors and nothing wrong with that. But sometimes that comes at the cost of our faithfulness and our being used by God in wonderful ways. And in the moment, we don't see it, but we see it down the road. Or maybe our children talk about it. Or maybe our grandchildren or maybe our great-great-grandchildren. I looked at my world at times when I've been disappointed, where I wanted to accomplish really honorable things sometimes. And that's really, it's a good thing. But you know what's better than that? Is being used by God without any recognition, without any sense of way to go. Because those of us who love Jesus, our reward comes later. And you know what we're told in Revelation? When we do finally get that crown, you know what we're going to do with it? We're going to take it off and we're going to place it at the feet of our King Jesus. Even then, we're not going to want it. Because we want him to get all the praise. So, Israel, it's not Narnia. And it's not Middle Earth, but it's a real place where things like that really happened. Could take you through the, up the Via Della Rosa. Could take you to a place called the Garden Tomb. Could take you to the Garden of Gethsemane where Alfie and I sat. And we asked Jesus to do something in us and through us that would be like new and fresh and wonderful. It's a real place. Whether it's that exact spot But again, it's just a place. But it's where God showed himself to planet Earth. Lesson one. Lesson two was this, that we all desire and detest having a king overseeing our lives. Like, it's so fascinating. You go through Israel's history and you see for thousands and thousands of years, they have been the hot spot in the world, it seems, for conflict and tension and violence. I don't know these exact numbers. I don't remember them precisely. But Jerusalem itself has been raised, flattened, totaled, wiped out, stone not on another stone, two times in its history. Totally flattened. It has been besieged 23 times, I think it is. It has been captured and recaptured 40 times. It has been a conflict of fights and tension 50-some times. And every single time, that conflict has been led by a king or a commander or an emperor. Somebody's led it. And somebody who led it had a group of people who followed that somebody because they wanted to do what that king wanted to do. And what did the king want to do? Take over. The king wanted power and wanted authority and wanted to rule the world. And when they got a little taste of that, they wanted to rule more than that. 
And so they expand their kingdom. We see that going on in the Ukraine right now. This is what earthly kings do. And there's just this relentless history of looking for a king. See, we all want a king of some kind or another. If we had our choice, we would pick a king that's well benevolent and kind and generous and does good things for us and provides free this and free that and like that's just us. And so we want that king. And yet when we think of a king and the king having authority over us and telling us what to do and how to live and pay taxes and you know involve yourself in military service and we go, I don't want that. I want to self-determine. I'd rather think I make a great king for myself. Right? And that's the history. And then somebody comes into the world and says the kingdom of God is now present because the king is present. His name is Jesus. And he's the only king Whoever, when he came, didn't put a crown on his head and said, follow me. He took the crown off and said, I've come to seek and to save lost people. I love people. And I want them to find hope and joy and delight. And I'm not going to make you do this. I've come to rescue you. I've come to save you. In fact, there's a huge obstacle. You may admit it or not. But your abandonment of God, your rebellion against him, your rejection of him that happened in chapter 3 of Genesis. I've come to fix that. But I haven't come in a way that says, now get in line. Behave properly. Like, do the right things. No. I came. Though I had a crown in heaven, I took it off and left it in heaven. And I came as a humble human being humble to the point of death on a cross so that I could rescue you. I'm that kind of king. That's the king we've really wanted. We still want. And this king is so humble, he says, would you like me to be your king? Because you've got a choice in the matter. But if you do, I'm not asking you to like, align your life with me. I'm asking for your allegiance. I want all of you. I want to be your king. I want to guide your life. I want to direct you. I want to lead you. I want to tell you. I want, to, I want you to have the whole, the good life, the full life. There's no other king like this one. None. And this king has absolute sovereignty in all the universe. He is preeminent over everything and everyone. And he could so easily force humans to do what they're supposed to do. But he doesn't. He comes as like no other king. Do you know him as a king? Or is he your advisor? Is he your direction giver? Have you shut him out of your life and gone, I get to that one day. I don't believe that whole thing. It doesn't change that he's the king. Because if you're really the king, you're really the king. And time will tell. Or eternity will tell. Do you know him as your king? This is what Israel longed for, still longs for today. And Jesus came to introduce himself to us in that way. It's an amazing story, friends. It's an amazing story. If we had time, I would take you back to 1 Samuel. 
where Israel asks for a king. And it disappoints Samuel that this is what they would do. He goes to God with it and says, Samuel, it's okay, buddy. It's all right. I know what they're asking for. And Samuel, it's not you and your leadership they're rejecting. It's me they're rejecting. Because I've always wanted to be their king. But now they want to try a different kind. And it won't ever satisfy them. And then 1,300 years later, the king of all kings stepped into time and space in Israel and rescued us. The king of all kings. Amazing. Do you know him as your king? So, King Jesus, we address you as such, for this is what you are. You're worthy of that title, not because you demand it. In fact, you, it appears, give us the option to receive you that way or to not receive you that way. And here's the wonder. You continue to pursue us with your kingly love because you know if we don't choose you, we're making a mistake and life to the full won't ever be ours. We'll look for other kings and we'll probably even try to make ourselves kings and queens. (laughs) But you'll have none of it for you love us so much that you would come and take care of our our biggest problem, our sin and separation, so we could discover you as the one and only king. Thank you, Christ. Your majesty, king of all kings, Jesus. Amen.